Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. This is the Back from the Abyss Summer Special, this year with Dr. Hilary McBride, and I think you're going to be delighted with what you are about to hear. But first, an announcement. My colleague and friend, Dory Lewis, will be hosting a training called Psychedelic Ceremony and the Art of Groups. This will be a four-day experiential workshop in Colorado from September 13th to 17th. I think it's going to be a great experience. You can check out her website, elementalpsychedelics.com, for more info. This is the Back from the Abyss summer special. And I am in Denver in a rental Airbnb house with four awesome people, including Dr. Hilary McBride, who's sitting across from me. So happy that we're housemates. I'm delighted. Every minute of it. Every minute of it has been pure joy. Yeah. <laughs> um, listeners may remember that Hillary was on Back from the Abyss a couple years ago, and it was during COVID, and she and I had planned this whole thing to meet in person in Colorado. She was going to be here for a retreat, and then um, COVID hit, and we had to do it remotely by Zoom, and uh, Hillary was gracious. And th- that was a great episode, but I felt very cheated. I thought, I mm. want to sit in the same room with Hillary. Mm. And so um, I schemed, um, you and I were in <laughs> communication. A- I said, don't you want to come to Psychedelic Science? And don't you want to stay in my house? And don't you want to record an episode <laughs> yeah. with me? And don't you want to hang out with me and be oh. my friend? <laughs> well, the scheme, the scheming worked, but it also didn't have to because I was, I'm just so delighted to be having this conversation with you here in person, finally. I know. Yes, no one's going to rob us. No one's going to. Before we jump into some of the topics I want to go through, I'm just curious. We've been here two days now. We've seen Mm. two days of Mm. a lot. Anything at Psychedelic Science really surprise you or interest you or grab you or in all the sessions Mm. you've been to? I was, of course, like intellectually titillated by some of the neurological pieces and the emerging data from different clinical studies, but I found myself almost compelled, drawn in around some of the conversations around mysticism. Like I was sitting in in a conversation, it was a panel of a a Muslim imam and a Jewish rabbi and a Christian minister who's also an academic and and their conversations about psychedelics and mysticism and, and the challenges with our existing religious landscape and the way that they are implicated in so much political turmoil seem to be to them um, a symptom of mysticism missing in our modern day religious world. And so to talk about the body and mysticism f- in particular felt really stimulating for me. That feels like so much of the place that I love to to live in intellectually, but also experientially, uh, the the merging of matter and what we have been told is transcendent, but might actually be imminent. And thinking about how that is, there's a rich tradition of mystical experiences within so many of our religious traditions that have in some ways been forgotten, but are available to us. And psychedelics could be a part of recovering the state of religion in a way, at least some of the mainstream Mm facets of religion that seem to, to be doing a lot of harm and, and creating division. So there there was so much that spoke to me personally there, and it just felt I could feel the energy of that in my body and what it was like to be in the room with people who had, you know, some of these people were part of the John Hopkins um, faith leader psilocybin study that, you know, the, the data is emerging shortly here. But to hear these people who have been studying wisdom 
and sitting in these spaces of not knowing and tension and longing and existential questions talk about psychedelics and embodiment and politics and justice work Mm. it just felt so rich for me yeah that's a beautiful description i think my favorite thing so far i I had told you and the other housemates about i went to a session yesterday that was basically entitled like can you have a psychedelic experience without without drugs and there are probably 200 of us there and the facilitator led us through this exercise with eye gazing and instructions and breath work where we Basically, as far as I could tell, everybody was having a really powerful connecting psychedelic experience. And it, it was amazing. It took me hours to really get over it. And yeah, yeah uh, I'm still thinking about it. Yeah, I remember seeing you right after and you were moved and then hours later talking about it again. And mm-hmm. there was still like electricity and yeah. energy on it for you. Yeah, so amazing. Yeah. I wonder if we might start just kind of catch up from when we last talked. So mm-hmm. when I first reached out, reached out to you um, to be on Back from the Abyss, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours. I've mm-hmm. listened to lots of podcasts. But one thing was, I didn't want, I, well, one, I didn't want you to just talk about something that you talk about a lot. I want to do something different. And because Back from the Abyss is, is about stories, you know, I had reached out to you and said, would you tell your story, your treatment story, your struggle with eating disorder and body image and, you know, in the last two years, something really amazing has happened is that your mother, <laughs> you have a baby, I guess a toddler now. It's true. And um, so one of the things I'm so interested in is what that's been like, um, given that you are a psychologist who specializes in all these areas and and you just went through this thing where your body totally changes and, and your mm-hmm. body's not your own and, and this little baby depending on you and, and you know... I sometimes see women um, go through pregnancy and matrescence, and it's it's very healing. And I also see women that it gets the thing that pushes them into a really hard place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering, yeah, how much if you feel comfortable just speaking to what mm-hmm. this process has been since you and I last talked about now your mother. And mm-hmm. It's just such a you've taken on this whole new role. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That heart makes my, or that question makes my heart pitter patter because it, motherhood to me feels like this. And metrescence in particular, the embodied change that, that, um, that demands that everything about the way that we orient to the, to the world changes too feels so consuming in my, my inner thought life right now. I, um, particularly as the, uh, it feels to me in an, in a way a psychedelic experience. So, I'll back up a little bit by talking about how I can't remember if in the episode we did previously where I was talking about recovery, talked about living in a birth house in the Philippines, but Mm, I think you maybe mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have been infatuated with midwifery for some time and thought I would be a midwife. And then while I was waiting to get into midwifery school, applied to a grad program in counseling psych and got in and I was like, Oh, this, Oh, this is my language. This is, I want a midwife, the mind, the heart, Mm. kind of the experience of the, the phenomenological experience of the self. I want to midwife that into more flourishing and and being. And so I had this fixation and fascination with birth because I'd been to so many births and I saw transformation in front of me. It felt like this archetype of what it means to be in therapy, what it means to grow and be in development. And so I did all of this research often mixed methods stuff related to the perinatal transition, what birth experiences were like, what helped, what hindered, 
matrescence, identity formation, the things that predict good outcomes, like what what feels transformational about it? What is sexual identity postpartum like? How do you negotiate that to hold the, you know, we often talk about the Madonna whore complex. What does it mean to be sexual in a person and a mother? And can these things kind of coexist when we don't have imagery for that? And so I had this. You're such rich- a researcher. <laughs> you're <laughs> so, you're, I love it. You're like, There's so many things I have to investigate. I, do, I have to investigate them all. That's in my primary orientation to the world is like curiosity and, yeah, and, it's, it's and interest. Mm-hmm. So I went into motherhood on one hand thinking, oh, I've seen the data, right? I feel like, okay, I can know what to expect. You can perhaps hear the hilarity that is about to <laughs> ensue right? as we go in thinking with these major life transformations. I understand it conceptually. And then we live it in our in our bodies and it disorients us to the world. And the things that we knew, Frank bent apart because they're too small, to hold the complexity and the beauty and the wildness of what the transformation into parenthood is like. So there, there's, you know, I'm foreshadowing a little bit, but one of the things that I did prior to motherhood that felt important for me in my journey was I, I wanted to do psychedelics with the purpose of preparing for metrescence. So I had been in the state of preparing my body in many ways, but I did a, a series of journeys and one in particular a high-dose psilocybin journey, I asked the question, it was my intention, what What do I need to know about motherhood? Tell me, mushrooms, mother mushroom, what do I need to know about becoming a mother? And, I mean, aside from simplifying it by saying I learned everything that's really supported me over the last few years, what I might condense that down to say is there was something I saw in, there was a couple things that happened. One, I I felt like um, I was able to encounter that that the sacred, that God, that the the kind of ultimate reality lived inside of me, and in a way was always observing and witnessing. And what that did for me was it undid a kind of um, aloneness that I've carried in certain circumstances where I've thought, "Oh, is this real? Nobody did anyone see this? Is it real? Did did it really happen? Is it?" Can someone ha- can someone see it too to help me be with the bigness of it? And and this psilocybin experience reminded me that the seer is always inside, and therefore whatever happens, it won't be alone. It's always held, it's always witnessed, it's always known. And then the second piece was, uh, at the end of the trip, I lost my mind, mm. and in and it felt like it went on in perpetuity that I lost my mind, and eventually I came to terms with. What was on the other side of losing my mind was a kind of embodied, circular, relational knowing that I could relax into. So I had this kind of empirical data, and then I had these the psilocybin experience, and then I had an absolutely life-changing, what feels like psychedelic birth experience, where I was absolutely in multiple-time states at once and inside and outside of myself and doulaing myself and birthing myself. And it felt like I was having this absolutely powerful experience of consenting to sensation that was overwhelming and finding the yes for that. And then on the other side of that, it felt like 
the the thing that I described about my mind, it started to happen. It felt like these and and the th- the way that I conceptualized how I knew life to be, including how, think of how much I oriented towards this major life transition by using empirical data as the cornerstone to like be my map. That tells you something about my mind. And then there was something about. I was having hallucinations postpartum because of sleep deprivation. I was feeling my entire world disorienting. It felt like I was holding, you know, my my existence and myself, my way of knowing myself was like sand in between my fingers and I it was slipping away and I couldn't grab it. And there was so much about that that psychedelic experiences prepared me for in terms of realizing, okay, what's on the other side of this is a different way of knowing. This this way of knowing is is being is asked is it's I'm I'm being asked to release it. It's being ripped from my fingers. But what I found as I've let go of my old way of conceptualizing myself is is something that feels way bigger than the box that I knew myself to be in before. The kind of the limited, rigid, maybe even abstractions of reality that I had felt myself restricted to were too small for what's on the other side for me. And for me that has felt like um, so much more presence, love, grief, rage, um, a sense of interconnectedness to nature, to see my body as nature in a way that I haven't ever before that, you know, a, a notable story comes to mind that I was breastfeeding my daughter. And then I went outside to our yard. It was apple picking season. Uh, and we have a tree that has you know, it had apples all over it and it was time to harvest. And so I went out, breastfed her, went out, picked an apple and took a bite. And I understood in that moment that the apple was to me and the apple and its tree were the same thing to me as my body was for my daughter, mm. right? That there was this sense of going, oh, I am nature feeding life with my body. And here's nature feeding life with its body. Mm. And so it just feels like motherhood has been this portal to, I mean, Jung talks about paradox as kind of in a way the essence of life. It's just like everything, the like terror in a way I've never known and the vastness of interconnectedness that roots me and grounds me in those moments of terror and, and kind of everything in between. Mm. Wow, what a beautiful answer. <laughs> it's long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that image of apple picking and and just like the the life force and nutrition just passing down from tree to you to child yes yeah Yeah. to see the tree as the mother to see me as the mother to see me as the daughter that the tree my mother is feeding in that Mm. way i'm like my daughter i mean there's just so much i could do with that Mm -hmm. experience and what have you seen in in your practice with women Mm you know, the changes with their bodies and having a baby and you know, just everything's changing. And yes. it sounds like you, again, did a lot of preparation and you, <laughs> you, you went all in. And, um, and I think you reaped the benefits of that. But do you, do you get the sense, is that unusual? Or, I mean, obviously every woman's different, every situation is different. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, you've written and spoken so much about embodiment. Uh, and I just, again, I could see where it could go either way for women yes. that's, that actually feeling like, oh, my body is creating another being and this is what it's made for. It's not made to be skinny or to lurk a certain way or feel a certain way. Or, oh no, I thought I had control. Yes. And now all control is lost. Yeah. I mean, it really is, it feels like a 
a fork in the road for so many folks who struggle with being a body or, or people who've had experiences of feeling unsafe in their body. And all of a sudden this kind of like un, unruly kind of life force emerges. I'm even thinking about birth specifically where a process takes over that we don't have this cognitive control over and it's disorienting and that that can necessitate in some ways the, the, the strategies that we employ to locate ourselves when we feel disoriented within ourselves, like eating disorders or management or control or rigidity in other ways. I think what, you know, what I remember hearing an eating disorder treatment was actually in a kind of irresponsible off the cuff way. I had a, a, a psychiatrist say to me like, well, you could always get pregnant. Some, some women have a great time with like pregnancy and realizing that their bodies are, you know, meaningful in some way. And mm. me, I mean, there's so much problematic about that statement, and that should never be given as advice (laughs) to someone who is actively in treatment. But what it did signal to me, even when I was most most ill, most struggling, was, oh, there's a potential here that it could go different than I could think it could go, or there's there's a maybe there's an option, or there's there's multiple uh, opportunities for how this could go. So definitely I see, right. And the literature would confirm this, that around major significant life transitions, there's often a physiological component that's happening too. And often those physiological components ask us to look at the changes. They ask us to look at our relationship to our physicality, to our, our body sense, our sense of ourselves, our body image, our kind of relationship with interoception, all of that. And I think for some people, it's terrifying, right? It feels like a loss of agency. And you can see from the literature results in strategies to reclaim agency. And then there's this other group of people who it feels like, oh, wow, there's, you know, all of a sudden my body is is alive or there's like a sense of wonder or awe or mystery or it's, it feels like an invitation into a new way of experiencing the self. And I think of that as a, fundamentally like a bottom-up change process you have this new experience of yourself and it demands that you reorganize your your internal narrative that being said i think that's followed very closely by a wave of media and narrative about a postpartum body that we when we look at it from kind of a feminist analysis perspective we see so much of the narrative about what the postpartum body is supposed to look like is about preserving a pre-pregnant body, right? As if those changes should have never happened, they should be eradicated. And I was doing an interview with uh, someone for a media, uh, I was doing an interview with someone in a media outlet recently. We were talking about, oh, you know, is this, isn't this wonderful? You, You can become, you can get pregnant and then your body has this new meaning. And my critique on that, and I'm not the first to say this is, it's another form of objectification when we say that a woman's body is valuable for pleasure for a man or for the male gaze or for society as an object to be used to say that a woman's body is valuable because it becomes this vessel for someone else kind of really dissolves what I think is actually most meaningful about our bodies is that they are, is that they are us, is that they are meaningful because we, we experience life as them because that's where life is and not because it is for someone else. And so I think that birth and pregnancy and postpartum could be an invitation into that and going, oh, if I feed my baby, okay, I have to feed myself to feed my baby. Like I'm actually, I'm important in this whole life connecting to other life thing and I matter. And if I don't matter, then the people around me suffer. 
And so I think we can take it that way too. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for that question. <laughs> I was just enraptured listening to that. I was like, oh, this is, this is so great. Um, I wonder if we might shift and talk a little bit about what you've been doing professionally. Mm-hmm. So one thing I know, uh, you and I have talked about this, is you did the psychedelic somatic training mm-hmm. with Saj Rasvi. Yes. And I, um, I helped get you in the class with him. <laughs> you did? I knew. <laughs> it was full, but I, pu- were... I pulled some strings. Oh, Happy wow. to do that. Uh, but I'm curious uh, two things about it. One is how it might have uh, maybe sort of helping or furthering your own mm. personal you know, healing journey. Mm. And then secondly, how it might be shifting the way you think about practice and, and the work you oh, do, do with goodness. others. Yes. Okay. Well, I would love to tell you a story about my personal work and then thinking about linking that to practice pieces. Um, the first time I was in a high impact collision in a vehicle, it was 2006. And I was T-boned in the middle of an intersection, um, cars going full speed. And never did any trauma processing around that. I was just in the, in my undergraduate degree, I was not like, I was not even thinking about trauma. I had access to therapy. I talked about it, felt like I talked about all the things that I could talk about, but, um, I just kind of moved on and I started uh, a long relationship with pain following that first accident. And then a series of accidents that happened later, I've been in five car accidents wherein my cars have been totaled and I've been taken to, um, to the hospital and ambulance. And many of them, there were moments where I thought this is, this is where it ends. Mm -hmm. So like terrifying, traumatizing experiences. And it wasn't until the most recent one, which was in February of 2019, where a, a truck lost control and hit me head on in the middle of an intersection or kind of on the street, it was a big snowstorm that I, yeah, that I started to look at how the cumulative effect of all of these traumas was living in my body as pain, as flashbacks. I was not able to, you know, I couldn't watch a movie that had a car scene in it. Often if there was some, I'd have my husband screen the movies to show and we could fast forward, like just the amount of avoidance and management around car crash related things in my life, it was, it was getting overwhelming mm-hmm. because I wasn't able to drive to the store without these rituals of saying, have I said goodbye to everyone that I love? Mm-hmm. I'm like driving to Safeway. I'm, I'm getting like groceries. I'm like, okay, did I say goodbye? What did I say to my mom before I, when I saw her last, did I tell her I love her? Right? Like there's just, it was so, I had PTSD. I had so much active trauma living in my body specifically related to this car stuff. And I'd done EMDR psychedelics move the needle a ton, right? Some more passive approaches to psychedelic psychotherapy where I wasn't guided clinically, but uh, you know, that really helped decrease the fear and I wasn't afraid of dying in a car accident anymore. And then I got into the PSIP program and I, we were doing the first five days, the clin- um, kind of the experiential portion where each person in the program does five trips in five days or it's four trips in five days. And the first, the first moment I had cannabis the first day, the first moment it hit my system, I passed out, which is surprising to me because I'd never known anybody to lose consciousness mm. having a single hit 
mm-hmm. of cannabis. But did it throw you into a trauma state? Yes. That's so, so it took uh, me all the way to the furthest place that I had mm-hmm. to go as a means of surviving mm-hmm. the the kind of the the cumulative effect of the trauma in my body. So that happened and I started to get very disorganized and was accessing this complete overwhelm followed by terror, by shutdown, dissociation and these kind of waves. And we, we didn't resolve it the first day, but the second day I came back and after, after kind of gathering some internal resources and courage, I felt like I had the persistence to kind of stay with what was moving in my body because what had happened in the process was that I'd sense something and then it would be overwhelming and I'd kind of shut down and lose consciousness again or completely dissociate. So the second day we come back to the training and as I'm able to stay with these like the hot sympathetic symptoms and the terror in my body and the overwhelm, what we started to notice is that there was this charge building in my right leg. And I'd move away from it and come back and move away from it, come back. And, and as I started to stay with it more, right, I could feel panic again and terror rising in my body and my whole right leg started to shake and my right foot was bouncing up and down. Right? And I'm, I'm sitting on this couch with my leg out and my leg looks like a fish that you've taken out of the water. It's mm. just like it has a complete mind of its own. And Saj, who was, who was working with me clinically at the time, came over and just kind of gently put his hand on the bottom of my foot. And this was maybe after half an hour of this kind of happening and it kind of it was looping. It wasn't really going anywhere. He put his hand gently on the bottom of my foot and I started to gasp. And then what came next was this wave of tears and I can't find the break. I can't find the break. I can't find the break. Oh my God, I'm tired. I'm tired. Right. And this, this moment of realizing from my most recent accident. And then what I realized were the subsequent or the previous two moments where I had tried everything I could within my power to stop the accident. I was, I was looking for the break and my car was going and it couldn't stop it and nothing was happening. Like I couldn't control these experiences. And what was most notable about that? Well, one, kind of we completed this cycle and at the end I got to the other side and felt complete rest and ease in my body. But the real thing that sold me on this intervention <laughs> after all of that was I got in my car at the end of the day and I felt my legs. Mm, like they came back online. I hadn't felt my legs since 2006 in a car. Wow. I had legs again. And I like, it, it feels like these experiences that we, when people talk about mystical experiences of being reborn, it was like I, something inside of me that was dead came back to life. Mm. Like I re-inhabited this entire section of my body that I hadn't, I hadn't had access to. And the m- absolutely mind-blowing thing about dissociation and why I love this work is you don't know you're dissociated when you're dissociated often. Like I couldn't have told you that I didn't have access to my legs. And it, my family was so funny that night when I came home. I look, I kept joking, like I looked like a baby deer. You know, if you've seen like mm-hmm. some sort of animal just be, or giraffe where they're like, <laughs> the legs, like it's not coordinated. I couldn't organize my movement because it was like I was recovering them again. Wow. Yeah. So like so moving for me to think about being able to get access to myself. Mm-hmm. And to say to those parts of me that were stuck in the, in the shut off, and then the overwhelm and the terror, like and was oh, it you're primarily safe. was it primarily cannabis assisted those I sessions did, and ketamine and ketamine assisted yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. So the idea was using those as catalysts to go through the body yes. to sort of um, go into dissociation and bring things back right. online. Right. And, and to track the bodily process, like where did your system have to go to keep you safe and mm. recovering the parts of you that got stuck there. Like I sometimes think about the imagery of a mirror, like a, a trauma like shatters a mirror and the fragments of the glass go everywhere. And it's like um, this work of staying with what's happening in the body by using the processes that we engage in with this particular model and the support of the psychedelic medicine. It's like holding a magnet up. I maybe, no, that's not the right analogy because magnet doesn't collect glass. But, but let's just say <laughs> magnets were everywhere. <laughs> I betrayed myself. This is not, <laughs> I showed my knowledge gap here. But it's like, it's like, drawing together that shard of the glass that you didn't even know was there that got lodged under the fridge. You're like, Oh, it's back. Oh, that's back. And then you can start to cobble together this, this remnant, these, these remnants to, to create a more whole picture of yourself. But you do that by sensing, you do that by staying in the body. And it's like the nervous system knows how to organize itself when we stay there long enough with a loving presence and with attunement and with a gentle support and reassurance and guidance to not escape the process. Mm. Yeah. Have you started working much with, yes. with assist? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if you might say a little bit about that, either anecdotes or yeah. what you've learned or what's surprising or interesting yeah. about the psychedelic assisted work. Mm -hmm. Well, in doing psychedelic assisted work, I, I, what I'm appreciating most about this particular model, the PSIP model is that it's, it's yes, client and clinician kind of co-created in a sense, but there's an involved participatory clinician. And so many of the other models that I've noted are, you know, go, go inside, right? Take this, talk about it a little bit, go inside, have your own experience. And yet what I'm aware of in terms of the rest of the way that I work clinically is that it's so relational. It's so be here with me now and take me with you and let's feel this together. And what's happening is you share this with me. And yet my you know, my appreciation for relational resourcing as a strategy for that nervous system organization that seems to have not been available to me in terms of the, the other models I was trained in. And so this, this, it's been really, really cool to be able to feel more congruence in myself, to work in a way that is both somatic and relational with this medicine. And what I've seen is that it's really challenging and not everybody is ready for it. And yet when I have a really, a long-term relationship with someone or when they really trust me that we can access things that we couldn't otherwise access, it's, you know, I, I, I'm mindful of telling stories that appear hyperbolic in a way that mm -hmm. in, like simplify or reduce down the complexity of it. But what I will say is that I have seen more movement and deeper movement with this than more passive models of psychedelic for treating complex trauma for treating trauma that has, um, you know, a like a high degree of somatic mm -hmm. presentation or dissociation. I don't know anything else that works with dissociation in this way because it associates us to the experience of dissociation, which as I noted earlier, is so hard to get to. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have any thoughts or experience. I'm surely you've done some reading on this, the whole topic of psilocybin body dysmorphia and eating disorders. And there's been a couple of people on the podcast that told stories of amazing healing with psilocybin mm -hmm. with body dysmorphia and eating disorders. Yeah. And, um, and so I know you've at least dipped your toe in that, but yeah, do you have any 
thoughts or you yeah. know, specifically about how psilocybin might um, influence you know, the work that you and others will be doing? Yeah. I think that psilocybin, um, I mean, the emerging clinical literature, and I actually heard quite a bit about this today at the conference, shows varied results for individuals with eating disorder presentations. And in some samples of participants, again, who had kind of chronic intractable eating disorder presentations, particularly of the, the anorexia nervosa profile, didn't respond to psilocybin in the same way as perhaps um, some of the other study participants or folks who perhaps had a little bit more recovery on board and were a little bit more weight restored or other eating disorder presentations. And so what I'm becoming aware of is how, how this aligns with what we were just talking about, about dissociation. There's so much in the eating disorder presentation that often coexists with trauma and dissociation. And it can be very, very difficult for us to override those mechanisms on a, on a psychic level with psychedelics when there is, when the system has been built up to not feel like, I don't think the answer always is give a person a higher dose yeah. and do more drugs yeah. and kind of like blast them into an awareness of their body. And then there's also some questions about kind of serotonin and kind of opioid mediated mm -hmm. processes that might block why a psychedelic experience might be helpful or unhelpful. And so I think it's it's complicated, but I think that there's something really promising here because certainly in my experience and in many of the folks that I've been working with, when you have when you are medically stable and when you have the right relational support and the like the right therapeutic container and the right prep and the right integration, I think even just having, let's just say that let's just say the medicine did nothing, but you followed traditional research protocols. Mm -hmm having a person attuned to you for that many hours and invite you to keep going into your experience and saying yes to that on some level, even if there was no medicine, mm -hmm. like that could be such a beautiful experience for creating corrective attachment experience. But I, you know, I'm aware of like Rosalind, Rosalind Watts's model to accept, connect and body and just how important the sensory in kind of interoceptive experiences of both psilocybin and MDMA can be in this population and how it can, not always, but it can kind of wake up activity in the insular cortex, wake up activity um, in terms of like proprioceptive, interoceptive capacity. And that, that really is the cornerstone of being able to feel and experience yourself as a body mm -hmm. and subsequently then be able to interpret those cues and manage them appropriately. Yeah. I also wonder, see, in these studies with eating disorders and psilocybin, if there's a huge problem with the diagnostic category, because eating disorder is like depression. It, it's, yes. you know, it's a final <laughs> yes. common pathway with so many etiologies. Yeah. And, you know, maybe... I went to a talk today on psilocybin and treatment-resistant depression, and the, the guy talked about how complicated it is to do those studies. But one of the problems is because treatment-resistant depression is this huge wastebasket of yes, stuff. Yes, yes. And so uh, my guess is that if you looked, you know, participant, per, participant, you would actually see some very wide-ranging responses to things like psilocybin based on sort of the causative etiologies mm. of what's fueling the eating disorder, what's fueling the yes, depression. which um, I think brings us back to kind of phenomenological models of care and attune, attuned care providers who are making responsible choices based on the clinical's presentation. Is, is the origin of the eating disorder some sensory processing stuff? Mm. Is it attachment? Is it a single acute experience of bodily trauma 
right? What What's going on underneath there? And I think being able to pair medicine with kind of the, the origin of the eating disorder and what is most needed in terms of, you know, the person's state of recovery, I think all of those are really important questions to ask and help us do good care. Yeah. You um, told me, I think last year you told me a little bit about you're starting to do some group ketamine work. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious about your experience with that. Yeah. Um, that what your groups are, how you think about ketamine group work, how you structure it, how you work. Like, yeah. I wonder if you might share some of yeah. that. So a colleague of mine and I created a group program and we're calling it Catalyst. And the group program is really based on a few other models of group care. And yet we've made some really significant changes to kind of the material and the process components of the group. And what what we often say when we're speaking with people about the group is we use two medicines. We use the medicine of relationship and we use the medicine of ketamine. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And and in saying that, what we're saying is that we we have always, as people, we have needed to heal in community. And I don't, th- I, you know, I don't really, I don't want to promote in any way that I think we can do responsible psychedelic therapeutic work in isolation. I think that there's so much about wanting to connect that happens on the other side of psychedelics and, and being connected that helps with integration and preparation and kind of creating relational safety. But I think that psychedelics, when they're, when they're used best and not only return us to connection within ourselves, but then connection outside of ourselves to each other, to the earth, to our communities, like reconciliation on multiple levels and connection as a hallmark of healing. So in this program, what we've decided to do is, is promote attachment work, embodiment work, process work, a lot and affect work alongside ketamine work so that we're giving people an experience of connecting to themselves in the presence of others, even before you bring ketamine online. And what's interesting is we've had a number of participants say this, we're, you know, we're collecting data on this, obviously, because it's been so compelling to see what's come out of it. But people have come in saying, Okay, whatever, whatever, the relational piece, whatever, that's fine. Like, okay, just get me the ketamine, get me in the ketamine group. <laughs> like, it's, I, I just need to, I'm desperate to get rid of my depression or I'm desperate to get rid of this pain or whatever. My addiction is just get me the ketamine, like whatever I have to do to take it. And like, I trust you and that's, there's a doctor on the team. Okay, great. And then they come out of the program saying the most important part was my ability to feel accompanied. Mm-hmm. My ability to be seen, my sense of loving other people yeah. And how my love for them emerged as I got to know them and how my love for them healed me. Yeah. I mean, psychedelic assisted therapy. Yeah. And what is therapy? Therapy is, I guess, the somatic therapy, not, but, but gen, you know, ther- therapy is relational. And even, yeah. you know, the way Sash teaches somatic therapy is very relational. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's funny. People are like, we just want the first part, the psychedelic know, part. That's right. We don't need the therapy part. And you know, what's funny is we say the first medicine is relationship. And they go, mm. <laughs> and I like, think, blah, 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 blah. Right. Blah. It's a defense, right? Because the relational piece has been part of the injury. It's been scary. There's so much of that when we unpack in that, people go, I, you know, why I've been so ambivalent about the group is because of the group, because of people, because it's a variable I can't control because I'm afraid of being judged. Like all the things that happen for us that are connected to the origins of why we need the ketamine treatment anyway. Mm. So what we do is we, you know, we intake people and screen them and get them connected and make sure that they have a support person and we get consent from, you know, from their therapist. Is there there like a diagnostic theme or it's just, it could be anyone in the group? Yeah. 
Yeah, multi-diagnostic. Just, yeah, any. Tr- I think the the you know on paper what we're looking at is the treatment resistant conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, the substance use, the OCD, the um, kind of the depression, the anxiety, the complex PTSD. We're one of the only groups that I know who are actively taking people with complex PTSD mm-hmm. because that's often a a, a rule out for people, or you know, there's some concerns about group context and group care with that kind of active presentation, but it's been, it's been so rich anyway. So we, we screen people and get them connected and make sure that they have a support person. And then we, we start the group and we have a number of sessions, ketamine treatment, some more group sessions and other ketamine treatment. Um, and how, what are the, the logistics people each bring their lozenges and take them X number of minutes before the group? No. So we have a, a physician on site, mm. um, who's been, you know, he's a ketamine expert and he's actively part of our team and part of the intake and part of the sits, so we have a whole medical team that's involved. And so everyone takes the ketamine together. We arrive, we do like a, a medical check. We have a ceremony of sorts. We set intentions, get, you know, get people connected to themselves and their body and, and then take the ketamine together. But have an individual mm-hmm. experience initially and then come back together as a group or. No, do- we're all in the same room. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in the same room, having a trip at the same time. There's, you know, people. With eyes have- open. You can have your mm. eyes open. You can have your eyes closed. Mm. We have we provide eye shades. Mm. Uh, we have headphones. You can use them or not. Uh, and then we have, a, you know, the group facilitators as well as the medical team in the room trained to support people. And what's, you know, what's so cool about this is the, you know, Saj in the PSIP model talks about the three tiered, the, the three tiers of psychedelic work. There's the somatic, then there's the kind of the is it interpersonal? And then there's a transpersonal and people will come in wanting the ketamine and wanting a transpersonal experience. And sometimes they'll have a somatic experience and it will, it will confound them because it's not what they're expecting. And maybe scare them. Scare them. Right. What yeah. it, and this isn't what I thought I was going to see the, I was going to see the face of God. Oh my gosh. I was going to meet my ancestors. And they're like, I'm just shaking. <laughs> just <laughs> Why am I shaking? And then the, the story, like there's nothing good that came out mm. of that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and what's again, always so interesting about that is, oh, where did you learn that? Right. <laughs> like, oh, what would, what would happen if we could see this as like just as important. Mm-hmm. And so what I find most interesting about the group ketamine piece, as it relates to the interpersonal components and the interpersonal healing that we're mentioning off the top as a c- significant component of why this is effective is, is people will have their own interpersonal processes become projected onto the group. So they'll be sitting there having the ketamine experience and have something come up in them. Is this going, is this going right? Am I doing it right? Um, oh, I have a symptom or I'm having a memory. I'm scared. And then, and then the, the enormity of the challenge to raise a hand and say, can you help me? Can you be with me mm-hmm. or signal in some way I need help seems to be a feature of many of the people who are coming through the program that it's really difficult to announce that I have help and believe that your needs will be met. And what I'm seeing there is that the interpersonal tier of psychedelic work is emerging that people's, where did they learn that they couldn't ask for what they needed or that it would overwhelm someone or they, you know, the care provider would be gone. They wouldn't be in the room and the projections onto us facilitators are the things that they've been living with their whole lives inside of them. Like no one's going to be there if I ask for help. And so why bother? Or I'm paralyzed. So, so the, the interesting piece about how we have the group set up is that people then begin to start confronting and noticing their projection or their challenge or their trauma and their injury. And often we'll do a little work with people and say, what if the most significant thing that happens in the next trip is you put your hand up and you ask, no matter what else is going on in the room, no matter who comes, 
and you, you allow yourself to have a need and to speak it and to be, have it be met. And those are separate processes, right? Mm-hmm. To, to notice the need and then to articulate it and then to trust the care provider will come over and then to, you know, to have the, the receptive capacity to take in the care. Those are all different processes, but it, it's been such a foundational thing for so many of the people to realize just how much asking for a need is connected to how much or, or the inability to believe someone will meet the need is, is connected to their suffering. Yeah. Do you see the ketamine doing different things for different group members? Yes. You know? Yes. Say more about that. <laughs> was there more good questions? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to elaborate some examples, but yeah. Yes. No. Oh, someone's having an orgasm and the other person is um, confronting intergenerational trauma and the other person's, you know, having dissociative experiences and they're, they're saying nothing's happening and somebody else is over here, you know, naming their goodness and experiencing, you know, at a cellular level, their inherent mm. worth. And it's all happening in the room at the same yeah. time. And then what about sort of a follow-up question to that? Mm-hmm. Do you see, are there commonalities that people are getting from the ketamine that are allowing them to be more sort of present and engaged in the group? Like, are they more, mm. are they more peaceful? Are they oh. less fearful? Are they um, less overwhelmed? Are they? Yeah. Um, I would say like, um, one of my arms of my clinical work is is group expertise. And so I'll use the, the clinical language here to talk about this. Group cohesion increases, which would be mm-hmm. one of the factors that we would look for as group treatment being successful, that there is um, people's felt sense of closeness. Right? If you imagine a bunch of people sitting in a room and there's you know two to five feet of space between them as a kind of symbolic uh, representation of what the group is like at the beginning, as, as the treatments progress people's chairs come closer together, Mm. right? There is the felt sense of we're in this together. And the way that that manifests is not always peace or ease, but often it is a risk taking. There is a sense of, um, I'm going to try to do something different here. And whenever I prep people for group, I always say the mechanism of change in group. I mean, there's a few, there's you know, group consensus and realizing or consensus validation, like, oh, the thing that I'm carrying around inside isn't a belief that everyone else holds about me. Okay, maybe I can confront that that's wrong about me or corrective experience or social learning or altruism or this sense of group cohesion. Like I feel close, I feel connected. But what what I often say to people is like, how often do we get together with other people and intentionally reflect on our interpersonal patterns and have a space where we can actively work on changing them and know that there is a net underneath us that will catch us if we fall. So if your pattern is don't speak up in a group, what would happen if you spoke up as an experiment mm. and saw from the feedback in the group members how you how you were experienced? So people, I think, as they begin to trust each other more, as the co- cohesion increases, begin to feel access to courage because we know attachment is a mediating process in terms of turning like fear into the ability to take risks. If we can have if we can have closeness, then we can take risks to try new things. If we can try new things, we can get feedback about how that works. We can lay the groundwork for a new way of being and relating and connecting. So more than anything, I would say I see people do things differently. And sometimes differently is I'm the one always talking and I'm gonna make a little bit of space for someone else to talk, right? Or I'm gonna say I'm gonna actually say what I'm thinking. Or you know, a lot of the time I get frozen and, I, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to put my hand up and say, I, ju- I don't know what I need to say yet, but I need to say something because I, 
I'm just trying to do something different. Can you hang in there? Can you wait while I figure out what it is that I'm trying to say? So different looks a lot of different ways, but Mm -hmm. ultimately it is, it feels like the precursor to people building lives that more accurately reflect who they want to be and not the the deeply entrenched patterns that they've been stuck in. Yeah. How and when do you transition from people in in the group having an individual experience to the group coming together to have a group interpersonal experience. Like, how does that happen? Um, you mean in the academy? Yeah, or in the, pr- yeah. yeah, in the group. Because, like, uh, you know, you described people are, could have vastly different things yeah. going on. Yeah. But I presume at some point, it, the group, whether the leaders do that or it just happens organically, that people start to kind of come out of their individual yeah. experience and, and more into the interpersonal experience yeah. and do you mm-hmm. announce that like now mm-hmm. now we're gonna <laughs> the technical everybody <laughs> no, I'm just i'm trying to picture yeah. that because this you know it kind of sounds like mm-hmm. i mean it sounds fascinating but uh, it also sounds like a kind of a chaos fest oh it doesn't it doesn't feel like that in the room mm-hmm. and we do we're pretty thorough around procedures so that there's no questions about this so we have a playlist happening and towards the end of the playlist after a predetermined amount of time there is a tibetan bowl and the sound is played. And so that kind of signals the medicine's probably out of your system by now. And so, you know, there's some music that happens after that. And then we usually give people a snack and face claws and kind of the music changes and then the lights start to come up and we'll kind of call everyone back together. They'll have their blood pressure taken. And so it starts to feel a little bit more like they're integrated back into a clinical setting and into a shared experience. And then we process as a group Mm. and we take time to talk about what happened. And often people who are having a solid kind of a kind of intra-psychic experience will get to hear about other people's experiences. But there will often be like, oh, you know, when you laughed and I was in this moment of grief, I remember that I could have joy and grief too. And I started laughing and the laughter from you reverberated through my body and it changed what the trauma looks like. Mm. And so then people get to share and do something we call compassionate witnessing, kind of reflect what happens inside of you. Or I should say, what happens inside of me when I hear your about your experience as a way of reifying it, consolidating it, sharing it even more. Yeah. yeah. How often are people having such a difficult experience that maybe one of the leaders needs to kind of pull them aside mm-hmm. or maybe even take them out of the room or just like bring them into their own container so they can... Maybe not. It's happening. Yeah, once often. a group. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. And yeah. we talk about that ahead of time. We talk about sexual touch. We talk about sexuality. We talk about um, non sexual touch. We talk about space, noise. Mm-hmm. We have some a sort of agreed upon, um, yeah, community, yeah, community mm-hmm. agreements essentially, mm-hmm. and then backup plans for what to do yeah. if people are incapacitated and they can't a- right. adhere to them. Well, the more you describe the group, the more I can see why allowing people with developmental or complex PTSD in the group is that's brave because, mm-hmm. boy, this everything going on in this group could be very activating or mm-hmm. just you know, overwhelming for, for mm-hmm. people who don't have some kind of inner attachment piece. Yeah. Yeah. And we're cautious about that. I mean, there are obviously some rule outs for the group and we're, we're trying to establish connection with folks ahead of time. And, and there's also dose variability because people are using different doses depending on what they're comfortable with and what's recommended for them. And, and so there's lots of things that go into um, preparing for that, helping it be as thoughtful, planful, um, as possible without any surprises so that we can, the, the surprises can be the ones that 
we take as we engage with the where the medicine wants to take a person mm-hmm. as opposed to what's going to happen. How are the leaders going to respond? What's going to happen if someone behaves in a certain way? Like all of that is clear ahead of the time. Mm-hmm. And is there something about this whole group experience with ketamine that's been most surprising for you? In this treatment model, we designed it, my, my co-developer and I designed it so that we as facilitators are participants. Mm. And what has been incredible for me is to experience back from the participants the kind of things that I'm offering them. We don't often allow for that in models of care mm. in which, like even in very attachment-oriented models of care, I do so much AEDP in my clinical work. I'm using so much self and self-disclosure crying with clients. I will tell clients I love them. I mean, there's just like so much that for me, I share with people already, but, but the way that we've designed the group is that, you know, everybody checks in and everybody processes the material for that week. And so I'll say, this is what's happening for me in my life. And I get to be witnessed by the people that otherwise I would be separated from, from by this kind of high power hierarchy. And it really just shows me that the way forward in clinical work is, is relational in Mm -hmm. every sense. And that if we are, if we are excluding ourselves clinically from the love that our patients have to offer us, not only does it deprive us of what they have to offer, but it deprives them of feeling connected and close to us. Mm. And so again, I, I don't want to propose that every clinician, every therapist, psychiatrist, doctor goes out now and there's kind of like a more, you know, equitable amount of information shared bi-directionally. You know, I share just as much about my trauma with you as you do with me. But but I think what we need to do is move towards models of care in which power is redistributed. So yes, I can help you with the clinical skills, but I am not I am not under the illusion that you cannot impact me or that you shouldn't impact me and that you shouldn't have access to the way that I experience you and how good it is for me to be in connection with you. Yeah. On that note, I think we should wrap up. I have so many, actually, literally, I have like 20 more things I want to talk about. But you and I have to go to a dance party we tonight. Do. <laughs> and our, our other three housemates are downstairs, um, probably getting their psychedelic chic outfits on. That's right. So I think we got to wrap up this puppy and we got to get our outfits on and we got to get ourselves over the dance floor. That would be the perfect way to wrap this up because. I have the, the the fantasy that I always have in these spaces is taking them out of the cerebral into the experiential, and it's mm. so hard to do in a disembodied audio format. <laughs> but we'll just pretend this like the the podcast is continuing on, and that everyone who's listening is going to come with us, and we're going to move and shake and s- laugh yeah. and play. I have a very sparkly purple shirt. I'm oh here. my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> well, this has Incredible. been like. 15 times more delightful than I thought it would be. And I, I was, I've been looking forward to this for so long. When Thank I told Chris, you. my podcast buddy, I said, we're going to do another summer special. I said, and it's going to be Hillary McBride. Aww. Like that's, yeah. Last year was Nor- Laura Northrup. This year, you. So Thank you. I'm yeah. so humbled by your encouragement and affection. It's, it's such a delight. I think so highly of you in this work. And I, I imagine you know this implicitly from my, you know, my other podcasting work related to therapy and mental health. But I, I think that the more that we give mental health away, the better it is for us and for everybody else. And you have been such a pioneer in making like good mental health care accessible and narrative and heart and soul and personhood. And so I just admire the work that you're doing. I admire you as a person and I'm really grateful to share the conversation with you. Oh, I'm going to push stop and then I'm going to give you a big hug. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.